Hey friends, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to become a patron of Sly Flourish, you can go to patreon.com slash slyflourish and sign up. There are uh, links in the show notes below. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, some of which we're going to talk about today. And But most of all, they help me put on shows like this. So to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. Oh, we always have great things to talk about, but I think today we really have some great things to talk about. So I'll start off by talking, um, giving a Patreon update. So I had two PDFs that were available to all patrons of Sly Flourish called Sly Flourish's Uncovered Secrets and Sly Flourish's Adventure Generators. They were two different PDFs. One focused on one-page guidelines to help you run 5e games. The other one offered up random tables to help you build scenarios for your D&D games. And a lot of the material that were available in those two PDFs ended up moving into the Lazy DM's Companion, my current book. And I was stuck with this idea of, so that means I've got the new book, which will be coming out early next year. And all the material that's in there. And some of that material, most of that material is in Uncovered Secrets and some of the materials in the Adventure Generators. But how did people know which one? So yesterday, I tore apart both PDFs and I created two new two brand new PDFs. One called Sly Flourish's Uncovered Secrets Volume. Sly Flourish's Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 contains all of the material, all of the raw material that made its way into the Lazy DM's Companion. So patrons of Sly Flourish can get access to all of the draft material that is now available in the Companion in Uncovered Secrets Volume 1. And Volume 1 is done. So it, I think it's 54 pages of material. And all of that material is locked in because every page that's in there uh, is in the Lazy DMs Companion. That way, if you buy the Lazy DMs Companion and you are a patron, you know that the Lazy DMs Companion is the, the edited and laid out and the one that has all of the art of the versions of the stuff that is in Uncovered Secrets Volume 1. So you don't really need on Volume 1 if you have the DMs Companion. Volume 2 is everything that is not in the Lazy DMs Companion, plus all of the new stuff that I'm going to be doing from here on out. So it is an evolving PDF. It's going to have new pages added every month. And it is all of the stuff that isn't in the Companion. So if you have the Lazy DMs Companion and you have Uncovered Secrets Volume 2, you've got all of the, that kind of stuff that I'm putting out. So I did that yesterday. If you're a patron of Sly Flourish, you can see it in the latest update. I emailed it out yesterday. If you are a new patron, it will show you right away that I replaced the old PDFs with a one-page PDF that says, go get the new stuff here. So that should be all up to date. It's really cool. The, the total is 78 pages of material. So patrons of Sly Flourish get access to a bunch of other exclusive stuff too, but they get access to 78 pages of guidelines and inspiration, including a bunch of stuff that won't be in the plus, I think four adventures and the Discord server, access to a special channel on Discord, all kinds of great stuff. So the, patrons are, the Patreon is a really good deal. But if you want to see Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and Volume 2, they are now available on, they're now available on the Patreon site. So that is good. We are still, as I, just a quick update on the Lazy DM Companion. Layout is going well. All of the pages are there. I did write up this week the Dungeon of Shadows, extra two pages, the stealth stretch goal that's going to make its way into the book and, and turn that over to, to Scott Gray. The, I went through, I spent 20 hours in two days editing every single word in the entire book. So I went over every single thing. This is in the laid out copy. I wrote up a bunch of comments on little things I wanted to fix, sent that all over to Scott. Matt Morrow's continuing to send over art. Daniel Walthall's continuing to send over maps. Everything, everything is going smooth as far as the production of the book. I'm also talking to various printers about where we're going to get this thing printed because there's a lot of stuff going on with printers right now that's a little scary. But I think so one good thing is we are printing, very likely printing in North America or 
uh, Europe or both. Uh, so the print copies will be close to the warehouses that are going to ship them instead of being in China and having to come overseas and getting stuck with all the cargo containers. So that's all good. This week, a patron of Flourish, Nicole uh, Vanderhoven, came on to the Discord server and was talking about her use of Obsidian for uh, lazy DM prep. Well, she doesn't, she specifically says she doesn't do lazy DM prep. She is a high prep DM, but she is a fan. She's a fan of the, 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 the lazy DM process. And she, you know, like I said, a patron, so she can't not like my stuff that much. And she had a really good video that she had done on using Obsidian for lazy DM prep. She uses Obsidian for her work and she uses it for a lot of other things too. And uh, she's a big proponent of it. And I know of Obsidian. I use uh, Obsidian, and I'm going to talk a little bit about it today. But I recommend this video. Uh, the video for it is in the links below. So people are saying, what is Obsidian? So there is actually a name collision here. It is not Obsidian Portal. Obsidian is a application. And you can get to it by going to obsidian.md. And it is an application that sits on top of a pile of markdown files and lets you organize your markdown files. A markdown, if you're not familiar, is a type of text syntax that you can use. That's like an, an enriched text format. I use this, if you if you happen to be following this show long ago, I used to originally do all of my lazy DM prep in markdown files. I do a lot of my work in markdown files. I still do a lot of work in markdown files. And so Obsidian sits on top of Markdown and lets you edit Markdown files and lets you connect Markdown files together into something that's very similar to like Notion or OneNote and, uh, or, or like a wiki. And probably the number one advantage that it has is that there is no proprietary database underneath underneath this. The application is sitting on text files, which means you can take those text files, you can manipulate them with other tools. If Obsidian goes away, you know that all of your files are good. You don't have to export it. Notion has an export capability, but it doesn't. You, you don't have access to the files directly. You have to go through the process of exporting, and it can take some time, and if you forget to do it, then you don't have an export. This one, you don't have to export. It's looking at a, a directory full of your stuff. So I thought, so I spent a little bit of time yesterday playing with it. Let me switch over. Boop. So I spent a little time playing with Obsidian yesterday. And as you can see, so I have a, I created a test campaign vault. A vault is essentially the directory where all your markdown files are sitting. And in there, you can create text files for it. And you can edit a file and say, and you can write stuff like, is a Goliath fighter part of the worm dune Craig, uh, Goliath. I can create a little markdown file, but here's the cool bit. I can say, I want to create a new page for Worm Dune Crag, and I can just put double brackets around it, and uh, I can view it, and you, when you view it, it looks like a file, and I have this Worm Dune Crag, and watch, when I click it, bang, it creates a new Worm Dune Crag page here, and I can put, let's see, family of, I can create another page. So the interesting thing is all of these are just text files underneath. So the whole, I can go into this directory with a text editor and see all of these files. And so that, that works really well. I'm not going to get into too much about one you know, notion over this or anything like that. One cool thing is all of the application I don't think is open source, but it uses an open source plugin capability. So an example is I have, they have these community plugins and an example is a dice, they have a dice roller plugin that you can stick in here. And if I recall, so I can put a, let's see, I can put tilde dice 1d20 plus 5, right? And here it 
lets me roll dice in the app. It's rolling, and that's 1d20 plus 5. So that's pretty cool. Uh, you could do things with this, like create lists and have it randomly generate lists right inside of your page. Uh, you can do, so I, I was looking at the 5e stat block thing too. Let me make sure I get that run. So I can do uh, stat block monster and put in an SRD monster name. Let's try this. And we can say hill giant, right? And we go bang. And look at that. We've got a stat block for a hill giant inside of our document. The underlying text is this. So this is what it looks like in markdown. But then the it actually pulls up SRD stat blocks right in them. It doesn't have dice rolling in here, which would be interesting. Of course, we have D&D Beyond. We have things like that. In any case, I think it's really cool. I, I, if, you are, if you're one of the people that, A, worries about being offline and needing to have all of your material offline, or you're worried that you just don't have access to Notion servers, Notion has gone down from time to time, and if it goes down, you don't have access to anything. If you want to have control over all of the files that you've got, Obsidian looks really good for that. It's a very cool app. It does have, back when I was looking at it, there weren't versions for iOS. There weren't versions for mobile devices and tablets and PC and Mac. Now there are. This is, I'm running the Windows version right here but I have Obsidian on my iPhone and I can pull up the same notes on my iPhone. Uh, I have it on my iPad upstairs. I have it in other places. So there's lots of support, cross-platform support for Obsidian and all of the files are in Markdown. So pretty neat. So I definitely uh, recommend checking out Nicole's video on it. She does a very long in-depth video where she goes through a lot of different things that she's doing for campaign prep in Obsidian. It's a great video. Uh, I recommend it. You can find the video uh, in the show notes below. But Obsidian is a pretty cool tool. Am I switching from Notion? Probably not. Sometimes I get excited about new tools and I like to try them out. But I have a feeling, certainly for the remainder of this campaign, I'm sticking with Notion. And I have a feeling I will probably, I will probably do it. Oh, look, Nicole's here in the chat. Hey, very good. I love, I love that my D&D notes are backed up on GitHub. Yeah, that's really cool too. So all the plugins are open source. She reminded me of this yesterday, that all the plugins are open source. So you can download the source code for the plugins yourself and fork them over and do things with them. There's a lot of, the, 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 the infrastructure for the stuff that with Obsidian is all open. Plus you can use other tools. If you use text editor, you use VS Code. So you can use VS Code and do your editing in VS Code and stuff like that. Somebody says, why, you st then why stick to Notion? Because all my stuff is already here. Oh, so this is a point that I wanted to bring up, which is when we look at campaign planning tools, but I think the same is true with a lot of D&D tools. One of the interesting things that comes about is we tend to fall in love with a tool. And we can't understand why anybody uses any other tool except the one that we love, even though ours are different from other people. So it's certainly true with virtual tabletops, right? You, the people that love Foundry really love Foundry. The people that love Roll20 really tend to love Roll20. Or they certainly are recognized that they're caught in it. If you look at like Roll20 versus Fantasy Grounds versus Foundry versus, obs obs I'm going to pick on Albert Rodeo because it's my favorite. I, I can't understand why anybody's not using Albert Rodeo. So you have all of these different VTTs. And two things happen. One is if you start with it, you get really good at it. You get really used to it and you love it and it works well for you. Two is you get invested in it by either buying stuff that is exclusive to that tool or by building a lot of stuff in it that you use uh, and stuff like that. And then you look at the other ones and you're like, oh, switching over would be such a pain, but other people love them. And what's cool is other people are perfectly, it's perfectly fine for people to be using other tools. For works for them, we all love our different tools. And I think it's great that we talk about them all, right? I talk about Alba Rodeo all the time because I love Alba Rodeo and I can't understand why anybody's not using Alba Rodeo all the time. Like, I can. I understand why people aren't using it. They have different kind of purposes and stuff. I think the same is true for our prep tools. And I think I like, I, I love Obsidian. I spent a few hours with it yesterday and I've, I've been using it. I actually use Obsidian at work to handle local text files. And I like it a lot. 
I also like Notion a lot. And so far, the problems with Notion haven't been so bad that I'm like, I got to get out of this. If Notion had a lot of downtime and I wasn't able to get to my notes, that would be a problem. But now I'm so, A, I've spent so much time with Notion. I've talked a lot about Notion. I promote Notion and, and I've got my lazy DM campaign template for Notion. I've got all these things. The likelihood of me switching over to another tool, it, it, I'm, I'm in my my rut here and for me to pop out of the rut something has to be significantly better something where i cannot i can't even imagine not having that and if i see it and i try it and i go oh man i really wish i had this and i love the stuff the plugins and everything that nicole was showing in obsidian are really cool N not none of them were so like oh my god i have to have that like i i'm not i don't know how i can write another day of notes in notion if i didn't have the dice roller and the truth is like, i've got dice everywhere like I, the dice are cool so this, this stuff's great so it's very i think it's really cool i think it's really cool to share the tools that we're using i think it's really cool to try out other tools to see if they really sync with you better and also recognizing that everybody's got different tools that they love yeah i'm probably not going to be sticking to notion i'm probably not going to switch notion i am i am totally on board with the idea of tools that are using open data underneath i love the idea that you have a big pile of markdown files underneath it means that you're you're never really going to lose it the export capability of notion is good enough that when i'm done with a campaign i can export it to html and now i've got a non-proprietary copy of all of my campaign notes and those notes don't change so the fact that they're sitting in html instead of markdown doesn't really matter because i just want to go look at the notes and html will probably be as long html is text so it, html is likely to last as long as text files are i, I imagine so that's cool Let's talk about some Kickstarters. Uh, today, we're going to talk about my friend Rich Lescafer's Kickstarter for Expedition to the Mysterious Peaks. Expedition for the Mysterious Peaks is a campaign-sized adventure. It's a great big adventure that is built loosely on the, the, the Expedition to the Barrier Peaks old-school D&D adventure in which fantasy heroes find a crashed spaceship. In this case, Rich... So Rich Lescafer is the creator of the Esper Genesis rule set, which I've spotlighted on this show before. Esper Genesis is a 5e science fiction variant that lets you use 5e stuff in other, you can use 5e stuff in your science fiction game, or you can just use Esper Genesis on its own to do space science fiction based RPGs using the 5e rule set. And Expedition to the Mysterious Peaks lets you choose which one you want to use. It is, you can use standard vanilla 5e and play Expedition to the Mysterious Peaks, or you can use Esper Genesis, or you can mix the two together, which I think is very cool. So it's a great big adventure. It's going to be a big hardback book. It's also going to be a PDF. Lots of interesting material. He is offering up on the Kickstarter page, you can get PDFs of to see the kind of material, see the kind of production value that he puts into his stuff, and also see the kind of material that's going to be in the book. Here is an example from the core book of the engineer. Really great artwork, fantastic design. This is like a character class, right? The engineer character class. So really cool looking stuff, and I am very excited for it. I think I think it's going to be an excellent thing. Rich is a fantastic creator. And I highly recommend it. Lots of different options, a different Roll20. You can hit look available for your different virtual tabletops. I back to the digital edition because I can't fill my room with all kinds of physical stuff. So check out Expedition to the Mysterious Peaks. I think you will dig it. I know I am. I am excited for that. So the next Kickstarter came up, I think, yesterday, right? And I was like, oh, look, I get to do another Kickstarter. And the funny thing is I was already going to do a product spotlight for uh, Mjorkberg Ferratory when what should happen, but the people and creators of Mjorkberg launched their Kickstarter for Cyborg. 
So if you're not familiar with Mjorkberg, Mjorkberg is a dark, super dark metal fantasy, lightweight, old school RPG. It comes in a little small volume here. Come on, focus. It comes in a small volume here, but you can get it available on PDF. One thing about the products from these products, I think you got to get the physical ones. The physical products that they create are so, half of it is the, is the design. The physical design of the book is like half of the value of the book. You can get away with getting PDFs of a lot of stuff, but their material, I really think the physical version makes a big difference. So Cyborg is their, they call it a nano-infested doomsday RPG about cybernetic misfits and punks raging against relentless corporate hell. So take the hardcore black metal nature of Mjorkberg and throw it into a cyberpunk world and you have cyborg. This is one of those where as soon as it pops up, I just back it because I know the material that they've got. I fell in love with Mjorkberg as a product. I fell in love with it late. Like I didn't learn about it until after it was winning Ennies and everything like that. But I was able to buy Mjorkberg on, on the physical copy on Amazon and it just cracks me up. Really lightweight system, really lightweight RPG system. And they are, but their physical design is great. It's just, their design is so much. They blew through, look at that. They're already at $250,000 in backing, 3,000 3, uh, backers in less than 24 hours. Their popularity is certainly, I think they blew through every stretch goal like in two hours or something. They had a bunch of stretch goals and it just blew through it. Yeah, I think they're the only Kickstarter that I know that says, here's our soundtrack. And they have a black metal cyberpunk playlist here of, of music you can listen to to get yourself in the mood for their crazy black metal cyberpunk. You can see their physical design. Gorgeous. Look, look at the look at that combat page. Let's. Oh, oh, it's just crazy. Oh, look at that. Oh, man. Right. And you can see, like, they don't, it's not like they have nice leaned over tables. It's all off on the side. Like, what I like is you can't, here's the Mjorkbeard Ferratory. You can't even read it. Like, you, the text on the cover, like the font size, <laughs> you got to, like, really squint. I forget. There's a page in here where I'm like, I'm not sure what that's even saying. Another reason to back the Cyborg Kickstarter is that you can, as an add-on, add all of the previous Mjorkberg stuff. So for example, I had to or mail order this from a local game shop somewhere else in the country because you can't just go pick it up wherever you want. It's not available in a lot of places. And they have another Kickstarter that they ran, I think a few months ago, if not a year ago, and I didn't get in on that. But as in the add-ons, you can add on all of the stuff, which means this is a great time to become a Mjorkberg fan because you can back not only Cyborg, but also you can throw in extra funding and get all of Mjorkberg. And I forget what the other Mjorkberg thing is. What's it called? Heretic. Oh, look at the cover of that. So you can get Mjorkberg Heretic as well, which is another sort of expansion to Mjorkberg. And I don't even play it, but I just see steeping in it. There's just, it's so cool to read. And that's actually not true. I do like, I do playing. I play, I play by myself. I turn out the lights and play by myself. Do you have that black micro book? No, I don't, I'm not sure what we're talking about. I don't know what the black micro book is. Uh, I just have the Mjorkberg regular, this book, I've, the regular Mjorkberg book. I have the, and I got Mjorkberg Ferratory, but then you can also get Heretic. There's this DM screen, the Mjorkberg DM screen. Again, I don't use DM screens anyway, but boy, I'm getting that because it looks really cool. So uh, getting all the add-ons and stuff like this. Anyway, this Kickstarter is definitely, if you're into this, I'll tell you, there are other people who look at it and they're either A, grossed out, which is completely, completely understandable, or they just don't dig it. They're like, it's just so chaotic, right? This is so not like a typical 
like a typical product that they're, it's just not their thing. And totally, it totally makes sense. This is a very, I like to think of things like opinionated RPGs, right? It's an opinionated RPG. The stuff that I produce are opinionated RPG products. They have a particular angle, a particular line, a particular agenda, and they're going for that agenda. And that's different than what other people think of it. And that's fine because there's different approaches, right? So different between a very tactical RPG and a very story focused RPG are both opinionated RPGs. And, Cy and Mjorkberg and Cyborg are very opinionated towards the black metal, hardcore, body horror kind of RPG stuff. So if you're not into that, you're not into that. And I'm, I support you 100%. But if you're into it, you might get more into it. Check out Cyborg. Let's do a spotlight. I was planning to do this spotlight anyway for Mjorkberg Ferratory. You can get the PDF of Mjorkberg Ferratory on uh, DriveThruRPG right now. But like I said, you and, and if you want something right away, you can drop the 10 bucks and get the PDF right away. But I highly recommend trying to figure out how to get the physical copy. Look at the eyes. Oh, I, I got to get my face out of the way. Come on, focus. Look at the shiny eyes. It's got shiny eyes on the front. So you can... There we go. You can get the PDF right away. I was going to link to the PDF because at the time it was the only thing available, but now I would recommend getting it in the Kickstarter so you can get the physical version because the physical stuff is really the design of the physical stuff. They managed to they managed to create a physical design that feels like a zine from the 80s, right? Like the paper quality feels like the paper quality of a zine in the 80s. It's got that sort of pulp feel to it. But, and it looks like it's black and white, except then there's these splashes of color. So you get this like black and white stuff. And then there's like a page that's got like gold, like a gold inlay. And you're like, that's not cheap to create. This is not a cheap book. If it's meant to feel like one, but it isn't one. And then you get into stuff where it really, the, the, it looks like it was mimeographed. And then it's not, right? Like having a foldout for the front page that has monster, the monster approaches. So Mjorkberg Ferratory is a book of tools and accessories and adventures designed for, what just happened? It is a book of tools and uh, accessories for Mjorkberg. Let's pull this thing up. So here is the PDF. And you can see they even like the pure white of the, the eyes of that weird skull. And it's, you can't even read that. Like they use fonts, font styles that are just on the verge of illegible monster approaches, right? Roll, roll the monster. And it's, it's a sentence creator, right? Let's for funsies. Let's roll. looks like it's a D12 base for all this. Get out your dice. You can do this at home. A monster approaches visibly necrotic with filthy claws like swords it's i'm afraid when i'm gonna roll it's absorbing all sound eerily dead quiet so you build this sentence generator that lets you make a monster right on the fly and then you get to decide you know what kind of look at the dice you rolled the greatest result is its morale that's a 12 lowest result is its damage i rolled a two so it's only a d4 uh, whichever table has the highest result determines its armor right so you're building like more than anything Oh, that's a d20 roll. More than anything, it wants to uh, devour every living thing it seizes. And terrible, it has terrible traits. Five, can speak and humiliate the PCs. Minus two to presence for the fight's duration. So that's, it's a three page 
Is it even three pages? It's two page monster generator. What kind of game system? Imagine having a two page monster manual for D&D. Fantastic stuff. So really cool, really cool stuff. So then it's got all sorts of other things in here. Uh, it's got an adventure. It's got like accessories. Again, all, it's got a, like how to travel in the, the dark and dismal lands. Like how long does it take you? What do you find when you're going in there? It's got a, a the eat, pray, kill is a, look at that. Eat, pray, kill is about hunting, hunting in this twisted land. What are the kinds of things? Mjorkberg highly relies on random generation for almost every aspect of it. Everything from character creation to adventure design is all built on random stuff. Really neat stuff. But you can see stuff, the giant skull moth, the human-sized skull mark on its, on its tar black wings, perfect bait. Everything is very flavorful, even though it's a highly random, highly lightweight system. I really dig it. So one thing that I found in Ferratory, which I was like, ooh, I want to try that. I can't even read that. What is that? The, I think that's death, right? The death ziggurat, that would make sense. One thing is that, oh, so uh, I think the material found in Ferratory and the material found in Heretic are actually community material written by other creators for Mjorkberg that were then given to, or then I think there was some kind of agreement worked out with the creators of Mjorkberg to turn into these books. So it's a it's an interesting way to uh, build a fanzine that they produced. So the depression, that really works. One of the things that Ferratory contains, and it's actually a separate booklet in the book, is a solo role-playing game, a, a role-playing game you play by yourself like you're meant to in the dark woods under the half moon, sitting there with your hoodie on, maybe some black stuff under your eyes. So you can play this solo RPG. This was, it's called Dark Fort. I know the focus didn't work. Let me get the focus. Dark Fort. It's a little booklet. It's actually a single page folded in booklet format. And it contains, and then a, and then a half page character sheet. And it is a solo RPG. It is a, a, a Mjorkberg-like RPG that was re-edited, a slightly adapted, translated version of the solo micro RPG that became Mjorkberg. I have the PDF for it. And we're going to go to a full page here because it's in a two-page spread. Really cool. Again, designed to look like a fanzine. And what you do is you basically crawl through a dungeon. You start off, you determine who you are. I think the, the character sheet's one type of character. And uh, you pick your entrance room, you determine if there's, you get to pick what items you carry around. And then every time you enter a room, there's a chance for a different encounter. And you engage in the encounter. Uh, if you roll high, you win. If you roll low, they, they hit you, you take damage and you move on. It's very fast paced dungeon crawl kind of thing. And my only problem with it is the room table list was a little too short. And I ended up facing this stupid Riddler soothsayer like 14 times in a row in my run. And then I ended up getting killed. It's a very fun. I did play it. It was like a half hour of me sitting at the table with my hoodie on, my hood, my hood cloak, dark lights off, candles on, playing some Dark Fort. Really a fun thing. I got my attention enough that I created a solo RPG that uses 5e rules that is now available in Sly Flourish's Uncovered Secrets Volume 2, available to patrons, in which you use random tables from the other Uncovered Secrets and from the Lazy DM's Companion and from the Lazy DM's Workbook to generate your own quick play RPG. And I played it and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, so I created a little 5e version. I was inspired to create a 5e version because I played this and I like this so much. I think it's cool that you get in Yorkburg Ferratory and you get, oh, and it has leveling up. Like when you level up, you get stuff. I thought that it was really neat that the book included the booklet and some spare character sheets to play, to play Dark Fort. 
So I highly recommend Mjorkberg Ferritory. I highly recommend Mjorkberg. I think it's really cool. Again, if it's your style and it may not be your style, like that it is a very specific product for specific kinds of people. Is my focus in? It's a specific kind of product for specific people that would be interested in that sort of thing. I think the best way to get it is probably to back the Cyborg Kickstarter and pick all of the add-ons that you want to get, including uh, Dark Fort. I think it's very cool. So a couple other things, uh, some experiences from my D&D game that I've run. So last week, my characters had the opportunity to face, I'm not going to give any away spoilers about the vampire, but they face a vampire. And I have been tweaking vampires for a long time in 5e because I've never really been happy with how vampires ran. And I added two things, very simple things to my vampire that made the vampire significantly more dangerous and really more interesting and far scarier in my opinion, than the vampire that exists on D&D Beyond. And I thought I would share, I thought I would share my experiences. The vampire is a available to everybody under the system resource document. They did not kill it with a mammoth. So the two very simple things I did, and you can add a third if you want, but we're going to just go with simple. One, on the unarmed strike, give it plus 3d6 necrotic damage. And if they're grappling the target, instead of, when it says instead of dealing damage, it's instead of dealing the bludgeoning damage, they can grapple. So they can still do that 10 necrotic damage when they grab somebody. And adding that extra 10 damage onto this unarmed strike takes it from 8 to 18. And because they've got legendary uh, unarmed strikes, that means they can do a lot of damage with their slam attacks. So that made it significantly scarier. The other thing I did is I doubled the necrotic damage on the bite attack. So instead of 3d6 necrotic, it was 66 necrotic, up to 21 points of necrotic damage. And their hit points are reduced by 21. And that made this vampire far scarier. They did not want to get bit. And they did everything that one person got bit and lost 24 hit points and their hit point pool. And they go, if I hit that again, I'm dead. And they were like, everything they could do to not get bit by that vampire to take that 21 damage was a huge amount of stuff. So that, those are two things you can, very easy, add 3d6 necrotic damage to the unarmed strike, add an extra 3d6 necrotic damage to the bite attack for a total of 66, and you've got yourself a really scary vampire. The only other thing I might do is in, in, get rid of the charm because charm is a pain in the ass. It just takes away the agency uh, of a character. And instead, you can give a bonus action for a grant advantage against an attack or cast the spell command, use the command spell as a bonus action or hold person as a bonus action. So they're either paralyzed in place or they're forced to do one thing. You could also give it that they can, as a bonus action, they can try to charm somebody. And if they charm them, that person takes their reaction to move to somebody and make a melee attack. And that way you're not stealing their full action. It's a quick thing where you know, all of a sudden the fighter charges the mage and hits the mage and then the fighter's out of it again. Real quick thing that you can do. That's a little bit more complicated, but it, it gives the vampire that feeling of battlefield control without the charm because the charm is too... If somebody fails at the charm, they're never going to break out if the vampire doesn't attack them. So... You could do the charm as a bonus action and then just make sure the vampire immediately tries to attack the person so that they have an opportunity to break out of the charm again. But I, I'm, I'm always wary about action, about taking away agency from characters with charm. So I think doing that like rapid charm that is a one-turn thing, not even a one-turn thing, it just takes a reaction and you get a little bit of control. And, or, or you can immediately paralyze someone in place and then go and then bite them 
I think is a good vampire thing. But the main thing I learned was adding 3d6 on uh, 3d6 necrotic damage to the strike here, and then 66 for the bite. If you look at Strahd stat block, Strahd stat block, they actually did this 4d6 extra 4d6 damage on the unarmed strike. And if the target is a creature, Strahd can grapple it instead of dealing the slashing damage, right? So he does eight slashing plus 14 necrotic. That's a lot. The bite attack was still 3d6 though. I like to have a bigger bite attack because I think it's more thematic for the for the vampire. So I really dug that, and I wanted to share. Uh, the other thing was this uh, this week I had the opportunity to use Fizzband's Treasury of Dragons in my game. This was in my Wednesday game, not my Sunday game. And basically they had an ally. They made an ally, an ancient white dragon ally because of quest stuff that they had done for this ancient white dragon. And I thought it would be, and they did a lot of really nice things for the dragon. They really helped the dragon out. So I thought it was cool that the dragon says, come with me. And he, he took the care, she took the characters to one of her lairs. She has multiple lairs. And in this case, I used the silver dragon lair because I thought it looked, I thought it looked really cool. In this case, I liked the idea that this white dragon had a temple to Tiamat that she was very old. And that was one of her layers. And I thought that this silver temple was a great way to do it. Now, in this case, they didn't have to explore it or anything like that because the dragon was taking them there to hang out with them. And but I really loved this map. And the idea is it, it has maps for many of the dragon layers, but you can use them. You can mix and match them and you could use them for all kinds of things. Obviously, any map you can use for any kind of thing. In this case, I took the silver dragon layer and turned it into a white dragon layer high up in the mountains. And that worked really well. Uh, the other thing I used is I used the uh, steeping magic items in the Horde of the Dragon rules. And they, she they described to them how her horde was so old and had been around for so long and she'd been with it for so long that it's that horde itself had magical properties. And if they would take items, they could dip the items into her horde and leave them there for the evening while she told stories about how great Tiamat was. And then when they took it out, the, the items would gain a benefit. And in this case, I was using the um, draconic magic item rules in here, but I was tweaking them slightly that they could take an existing magic item and add a bonus to it. So weapons could get a plus 1d6 cold damage that is that is unresistible by those who resist cold damage. Magic implements, magic items could take could get 1d6 extra 1d6 cold damage onto damage attacks. I had protective items that gave uh, plus 1 AC and also meant that they couldn't be charmed or feared. And then I also had offered up some of the draconic gifts. The two different the one that boosts perception, I offered that and the one that gives limited blind sight. And so it was really fun for the characters to be able to get some of these abilities. And it was really cool. And my wife had mentioned that. It's like when I was describing the draconic reward, she said, that sounds really cool, but we're never getting those. And then I gave them to them in the next session. So I found it was lucky for me that I happened to have a dragon and, and they happened to be at this spot in, the, in this dragon. My players wouldn't have trusted her. Leave my weapon. So it wasn't they, they didn't leave. They were they stuck their weapon in a big pile of gold and then they hung out in the chamber with the treasure all night and took a rest with her, but they trusted her at this point. They did a lot of work for her. And then the next morning they took it out. And, wow, look, it's got cold damage. So in this case, I used the things that you would normally put onto uh, a specific magic item. And I moved it and said, you could do it to any item that you already have. So I turned their existing weapons into upgradable magic items. And that worked really well. So it's, a, it's an idea of, to me, that's a good example of where you see something that's in a book and you're like, that's cool, but, and then you can change it slightly and then turn it into the things for your campaign. So I think that worked really well. And thus I am... The, the more I dig into Fizzbands, the more I'm enjoying what I'm reading, and I've already been able to use it in my game. So I consider that definitely a success. I'm, I like Fizzbands, and I wanted to share share my use of it in this game. Let's go into some patron questions. These are uh, every month uh, I post a note to a Patreon asking for questions that Q&A, things that we want to talk about on the show, things that I might want to do another video about, or things that we're going to talk about on Patreon. And I write them down, and then during the show, we go through these questions and uh, answer them. And there, I've already 
took a peek at some of the questions we're going to talk about today, and and I think there's some really good. Draconio Draconino says, "How do you set the mood? How do you get players to feel exactly what you want?" How do you get them really invested into the story? On the flip side, how do you as a player get yourself really invested? I just had a DM who gave me goosebumps from how excited I was, and I could feel my character's fear and pride. I want to do that for my players. You don't get to determine how your players feel about things. You don't, you can't, you can certainly set the stage. You can certainly build atmosphere. There's a lot of things you can do, but you're not gonna be able to control the feelings of your players. And I don't think you really want to. How do you get players to feel exactly what you want? You're not gonna get there. And you need to let go of that idea. But instead, you can try to build atmosphere. Sometimes how a game plays out is determined by the overall group. A game that you thought was gonna be really dark and dismal and grim turns out to be funny, right? It turns out to be slapstick. That's just how things turn out. So that's one aspect. So there's a lot of like atmospheric things you can do. Music, if you have a way to either pass music to your players online or run music in the in the game table, game, in the gaming room if you're there. Uh, mood lighting, right? Turn the lights down, maybe set some candles out. There's things you can do to set the mood and set the feeling of it. I think a lot about trying to get your players to not feel a certain way, but have their sympathize with their character's feelings towards what's going on in the game is to make sure that the kind of character, you, you can do this in session zero. You should, in my opinion, you should do this in session zero, which is make sure that the character's backgrounds are tied to the atmosphere of the adventure. Make sure that they're building characters that are designed to have the kind of feelings that you would want for the game. Because if they don't, they're not going to, right? And the example I'll bring up is Descent into Avernus. So when I ran Descent into Avernus, I ran with the, the adventure by Justice Armand and Anthony Joyce called The Fall of Elturel, available on the DMs Guild. Fantastic adventure and practically a required intro to the book. And I highly recommended, and I did this in my game, that the characters were tied to Elturel. They were connected to Rhea Mantelmorn, the main NPC. They were connected to the Hellriders, the defenders of Elturel, and they were tied to Elturel itself. They cared, the characters at creation cared deeply about, and I ran the adventure and they hunt a bunch of cultists out in the woods. And then they're standing on an overlook with their friend Rhea Mantelmorn. And all of a sudden they hear this massive cracking sound and they look and they watch Elturel fall into hell. And my wife said, that she was practically in tears when she saw that happening. And it was because she had chosen a patron. Her patron was the companion, this floating white ball, this floating second sun that was floating over the top of Elturel. And she saw it turn black and she saw the chains come and tear it. And she was like, that's my patron. My, my patron is gone. And she felt it, right? And she said, I hadn't really felt like that before. And part of it was that she was, her character was so ingrained into the story of the campaign that when things happened in the campaign, she felt it, right? I think that's so critical for any campaign you're running is to really sit down in session zero and say, your characters, here's the motivation for your characters in this campaign. And they can decide how and why and everything else, but they, they should be motivated around whatever the motivation of the campaign is. So that I think is, that is important. I would say something else you can do is, is always be trying to draw the players into the story of the game and getting out of the character sheet with their bag of statistics and thinking like, one way to do this is like campfire stories. I think I've done a video recently or I'm going to publish a video soon about campfire tales, right? Did I post a Sly Flourish article about this? Yeah. So a week ago, I posted an article called Campfile Story Prompts During Rests, right? And it was like, here are 20 different uh, campaign prompts or conversation prompts that you could bring up while they are resting for the night. I'll paste that in the chat. Uh, that'll be linked below. 
And it's a way to bring your player into their character if they tend not to be there and ask them, how do you feel about what's been going on? How do you feel about these things going on? And get them to think about their characters. And I've had some very powerful character uh, moments with this. I've had some, a lot of camaraderie. I want to thank you guys for, I, I, I'm often by myself, but these last few months I've been adventuring with you guys. And I've never felt this. I feel stronger with you than I feel with my family. Lots of really good stuff comes from these sort of character-driven prompts that we can do during rest. So that's a way, if you're into a campaign, to draw them in. You don't get to determine how they feel about things, but you do You do get to kind of draw them more into the story. And that's certainly something I recommend. So, so Dr Dr Draconino, I, I hope that answers your question. Victor G, how actively do you, oh, this is such a good question. How actively do you plan upbeats and downbeats? Do you alternate them regularly, i.e. an upbeat always follows a downbeat? I've realized that I've been primarily using downbeats as part of my grittier campaign style, but I see the value in upbeats and I'm wondering how frequently to work them in. All aspects of lazy dungeon mastering, a, a major key is to hang on with a loose grip. We, these are not hard rules that always must be done a certain way. These are loose ideas, loose guidelines. We use what works when it works. We don't use what works when it's not going to work. So the answer is how actively? Not too active. And do you alternate them every upbeat as a downbeat? No, you can have a series of downbeats and then one upbeat, or you can have a couple of upbeats and then a downbeat. But you're generally going to do better the more they oscillate, I think. And a big part of uh, the idea of upbeats and downbeats comes from uh, a book by Robin Laws called Hamlet's Hit Points. And he talks about how in storytelling you have oscillating upward beats and downward beats. Good things happen, bad things happen, good things back happen, bad things happen. If a bunch of bad things happen and bad things are just happening overall, everybody gets depressed. Everybody gets kind of, they get disenfranchised with the game itself. They think it's unfair and they kind of break away and they disconnect from the game. Likewise, too many upward beats and everything's just too good. It's too easy and it gets boring and stale. So we, we vacillate between upward beats and downward beats in order to shake things up, right? In order that good things happen, bad things happen, good things happen, bad things happen. That gets people connected more with the game. But you don't want to hang on to them too tight. And the reality is, and, and Robin Laws talks about this in his book, eventually it just fades off into the background and you're not even thinking about it at all. Once you've wired in the idea, it becomes instinct and you just do it. Now, I think being too active within it, and I've had a conversation with a, a friend of mine about this, that if you try to take too much control with upward beats and downward beats, it's not going to work. You're going to hang on too tight. And it means like you'll have one player who thinks everything is great and he's very happy and another player and she's not happy. And so how do you do upward beats and downward beats when the attitudes of the players are different, right? And the key is you're not really worried too much about making sure that the player again we're not controlling the player's feelings you can't control the player's feelings but you can look at the pacing of the game and say wow they got nailed by a trap that did a bunch of damage and they failed to disarm it they got attacked by a big brute and now they don't know exactly where they're going it's time for something good to happen right and that's the they find the ghost of a friendly adventurer or the wall breaks through and they find a fountain and i've got a bunch of a bunch of upward beat lists and what I recommend is when you're running a location, think about, and when you're thinking about the scenes that are going to take place, put a handful of upward beat scenes. It's usually pretty easy to do downward beat scenes. I think most DMs run downward beat scenes most of the time. Traps, hazards, hard combats, things like that. Difficult stuff is almost common. How about what are the good things that can happen to you in a dungeon, right? What are six good things that can happen in a dungeon? Meet a friendly NPC, find a map, find a, a healing font, find a safe room to take a rest in and find a treasure that you didn't expect to find, right? They're, like what are good what are good things that you can have? Write down a few of them. Write down six of them real quick. Just put six good things that can happen in their current location. Set it off to the side. And then during the game, if you feel like, man, they just went through a hard fight. Let me pick one of these six, right? Which one of these makes sense? Or I'll roll and I'll pick one. 
So I think that don't hang on too tight. They don't have to vacillate perfectly up, down, up, down, up, down. You don't have to be like that, but uh, keep them in mind. And eventually they'll be built And Robin Laws talks about this. Eventually they'll be built back into your, in the back of your mind. And you won't even have to think about them at all. William D asks, has character death become taboo? And if so, what is lost or gained because of it? It's a good question. I'm going to start off with a lecture though. No one gets to determine what you think is appropriate for your game, except you and your players. So if we're talking about the, is, has de character death become a taboo in the overall hobby or the overall zeitgeist of D&D? Doesn't matter to you at all. Not at all, right? You can learn from people, right? There's a lot of ways you can learn from the community. And that's what I love about the D&D community is I can learn so much. I get new ideas, new stuff, new products, new ways, new approaches, all kinds of different stuff. But when it comes down to it, I decide what happens at the table. I mean, me and my players, and it's not just me, but my players and I get together and we decide what's going to happen at the table. So nobody gets to determine that, but you and your players, right? It's only if you have five players, it's the six of you are in your own universe, completely separated from all of the rest of the universe. And you get to decide what matters. So it doesn't matter if it became taboo or not in the bigger picture. It depends on how you and your players feel about it. So that's the lecture, right? Has it? become taboo some would say it has i think that as the as games have moved towards more story focused games with richer character backgrounds i think it's less character death certainly is happening less than it did like in the original zero e d and d days and is there a loss or a gain i think it depends i think that some games character death can be part of the experience and i think in other games they're not if you are doing tomb of horrors and you have 17 henchmen and you're like when my character dies i'm just going to pull up a henchman and go uh, i think that that is good if you are in a really big story focused game where you say character death doesn't occur or if it does occur there's always a way to get resurrected or you be brought back or even like the hardcore what was the what is it called? Hardcore mode. 5e hardcore mode. So you think this is the this is the black metal of 5e. 5e hardcore mode, right? So 5e hardcore mode is like these optional rules for fifth edition that offer up like a grittier version of 5e. And they have this thing. I forget what it's called. It's like the, the life's candle or something. And it's essentially a save point. It's, oh, if you all wipe out, you can use the candle and it returns you to this moment where you can go back. So even in hardcore mode, they have a way of we all get resurrected and get to try again. And that way it's their attempt of saying you've got this save point, right? Let's like, what's the most like deadly hardcore computer RPG is like Dark Souls, right? Everybody's, I play, I love Dark Souls. You have infinite lives in Dark Souls. When I'm facing a boss in Dark Souls, that boss has one life. And if I kill him, the boss is dead and that's it. I'm on. If I die, I get to come back as many times as I want. So when we talk about hardcore mode, that's even the hardcore mode has a save point and Dark Souls has infinite lives. Like get off our high horse a little bit about death and hardcore mode. It's yeah. I don't think it's become taboo. Different people are going to treat it different ways. There's lots of people who think death is absolutely critical to the game. There's other people who don't have death. And I think you get to choose, right? You get to decide. The important thing is don't let the zeitgeist determine your happiness with D&D. Right? Don't let any of the, you get to decide what you want to do. Learn from it. Right? Don't be closed from the zeitgeist. And don't be closed from things that are going on in the community. Learn from them. Think about them. Bring them in. Ponder them. Try them out. Run small experiments in your games to try things out. 
but you don't have to worry if the trends are going against things that you really like because no one's coming to your home to change your game. Let's see. Hey, that's my friend Gabor. Hey, Mike, it's your pal Gabor H. You can call me Gabe if you like, or my lifelong nickname Rex. I will try to remember to call you Rex. What is your advice for an almost every time DM when I play, a DM who's getting the opportunity to play when someone else will be the DM? Holy cow, I finally get to do that. Awesome. Besides the try to relax and enjoy someone else's show, my friend Rex here is making my life harder by taking away the top two questions that I was going to ask. How not to be a pressure or burden for the newbie DM who has to perform in front of a DM who was in charge since he or she last played D. And vice versa, what is your advice for a player who wants to be a DM for the first time with their DM on the other side of the table? Besides just ignore it and try to relax and enjoy your story. He's taken away. He took away the two things I was going to say, which is relax and just enjoy and relax and sit back. But also my easy answers are off the table. So I have to go with my harder answers. And I'll start with, if you are a DM playing in your, in a player, if, if one of your players is becoming a DM and you are becoming a player, number one is don't offer, I would say, hold back on offering any feedback unless they ask. So just take note, right? You can, it's, first of all, it's a really good learning experience for you because you're on the other side of the table. So you get to learn all kinds of things you didn't get to learn and everybody's different. So it's not like you're the seasoned one and they're the newbie and you're so much better than they are. That's certainly not a good approach to take. Instead, you're different people with a different take on the same thing. And you can learn a lot. I've learned from every DM I've ever played under. I've learned something from. So seek it as a learning opportunity for yourself first. Also, don't offer criticism. Don't offer anything, really, other than thanking them for the game and everything. I wouldn't offer feedback unless they ask for it. And if they ask for it, think about the kind of feedback that you're giving. And instead of approaching it of like you have your bullet list of grievances, throw away the bullet list of grievances and ask them how they felt it went. Ask them how they felt the different parts of it went. Constantly switch back to asking them questions about how they felt the game went. Become a sounding board for them to think about things and ask them about it. And think about larger experiences than your own and be very careful about offering criticism about the game itself. Be very careful about it because it'll just, it can do far more harm than good right? It can, be, it can, do, far, it can far, do far more harm than good. And instead, ask them their stars and wishes, right? What do you think went really well in the game? What part did you enjoy the most? What part did you think was a little rough? What part did you think you, you, you know, and you'd be surprised. They'll think, oh, this part was terrible. And you're like, oh, we all love that part. So I would go with that as much as possible. Become, a, become an active listener more than somebody offering feedback, right? Listen to them, help them work through the game, instead of offering up your feedback. Hard to do, really hard to do. There's reasons why psychologists are paid a lot of money to do this. It's really hard to keep your mouth shut and listen and constantly dive deeper in through, through active questioning. Likewise, if you are a player who is now running a game for your DM, I don't think you're gonna have the time and the bandwidth to worry about how the DM feels about the game you're running. Every time I've ever run a game, I am fully on, like I am fully in flow. I can't think about, so I run a game for five dungeon masters on Sundays, right? Every player in my Sunday game, except for one, is a DM who runs games for other people, which is awesome, by the way. You should do, you should totally run games for DMs. They're, 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 they're great. They understand the other side. I don't have any time at all to think about how they think about 
the game as a DM, right? Every so often something will come up, like they'll know that I'm cheating on a monster or something like that. Or I wondered how you were going to make this boss. I knew that boss wasn't nearly as hard as they should be. I was curious how you were going to make them harder. So every so often something will come up where I'll hear something like that. But generally speaking, I don't have uh, that kind of time. Then likewise, I don't have time to worry about how the DM is feeling about the game when I'm running the game because I'm too busy running the game. And I, I presume that's probably similar for a lot of people. So that's one. The other thing would be afterwards, instead, you know, ask them for their stars and wishes. What's something that you enjoyed about the game? What's something that you'd like to see happen? And you're on the opposite side, right? Now ask them questions about how they felt about the game. Ask them about their character. What I think is true is that DMs who play are players, which means they're into their character. They want to know what their character is going to do. They're interested in the evolution of their character. They think about their character in the arc of the story of the game. So they're just players at that point, right? They're not that different from other players, certainly experienced players. So those are that's my advice. Uh, Rex, I hope that, that answered your question. Always a, always a pleasure to talk to you. Let's do one more. Scipio202, my good friend Scipio. Do you have any tips for having a satisfying conclusion to a story arc when the main antagonist is something where a direct boss fight may not make sense? Either because they're more of a schemer, like a Hag or a Rakshasa, or where the threat is more about mundane power and influence, like a noble or a rich merchant. Yes, I think it's really cool and fun to have villains who are not boss monsters i think having the noble the rich noble who's been scheming and plotting and planning and setting all these things in motion and setting off wars and doing all this stuff i think it could be really cool and if there is a final confrontation shooting the noble with an arrow and having them fall over dead i think is very satisfying right it's equally satisfying to fighting a great big boss i think that i think that can matter a lot i think that depending on how your story goes i think you can still have a boss fight but it might be like a sub boss you can still have who's the bodyguard of the noble who happens to be this like super powerful veteran or who's the big monster that the noble has summoned from hell that protects them what are the things that that go on there the other fun thing and i've run a couple of campaigns that have gone this way is the characters deconstructing the plot of the boss so I had a, in this case, the boss was a very powerful dragon. So not exactly the noble that you kill with one shot, but they knew that the thing was, it was a dragon who was setting herself up to become a Dracolich and she'd already built a phylactery and the phylactery was already hidden in some pocket dimension inside the astral sea. And they knew that they would have to destroy the phylactery without her knowing it before they faced her in combat. So you could do a similar thing like for a noble. If you have a noble, I like this idea of the noble is becoming an immortal, right? The, the, the noble plans to become a god. They've acquired all of these artifacts to become a god. They've built this like crazy sarcophagus that when they die, they're going to form into to become this god thing. And then it turns out the characters already knew about that and they broke the sarcophagus and then they go up to the noble and the noble's standing there and the noble's, ha, as soon as I die, I will become more powerful than you can imagine. And then stabs themselves in the heart. And then, the, and then they're like, oh, we broke your sarcophagus. He's, oh, and it falls over dead, right? That, that is seriously, that, that is a, a wonderful way to end a campaign. So I think that, yes, there are certainly ways you can do it. I think running a sub, if your group likes the combat arc and they want to have a boss fight anyway, having a sub boss that kind of stands in for the main boss, I think can work. But I've run now a couple of campaigns where the main boss has not been a super powerful monster. In my Eberron campaign, I had a villain named Leto Skull, who was like a mage. I think he was like an Oni mage. So he wasn't exactly weak. But by the end of the game, they were 12th level. So fighting a single Oni mage is not a thing. And by this point, Leto Skull had been overtaken by other villains. And so they had Leto Skull arrested. Leto Skull, they, he, he gave himself over and said, being arrested by you people is way better than what the 
daughters of the Sor- the, the hag daughters of Sorakal were going to do. So I'll go with you. And instead, the boss turned into this other monster. And then their villain was just like a patsy at that point. So how, who is the villain and how the villain changes? Eberron is great for this, like switching the villain around. But I think you could definitely have a noble. And I think it's part of the fun is deconstructing their plans, destroying their plans, having them realize at the last minute that their plans were destroyed. I've often wanted to run a campaign uh, where a, like a commoner is responsible for establishing like four major battlefronts like they summon it they manage to figure out how to get a demon prince summoned in the world they get the ancient great worm dragons to fight each other they get a super powerful lich awakened and they do this other thing and they're just like they just want to watch the world burn and turns out like they have all these major events that are going on the campaign that are huge and big and epic and it turns out it's one commoner who's responsible for all of it and if you think about like marvel's the captain america civil war right the villain in civil war is a normal dude. And his whole reasoning for all the stuff he's doing is because he's just a normal dude. And I, I, I think that is a cool part of Civil War, that it's one guy who's figuring out how to manipulate a situation. Zemo, he's figuring out how to manipulate a situation to destroy the Avengers. How do you destroy the Avengers as a normal guy? And it's like through subtle manipulation of the circumstances. I think that is a really cool villain. And I think you could definitely have a villain like that in your games. And I think it would work really well. So we have hit our time. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me this morning. It is always a great pleasure to do this show. Uh, I love the show. Thank you to all the folks in Twitch chat for hanging out with me today. For those of you watching on YouTube, thank you very much. If you enjoyed this show, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, subscribing to my videos on YouTube, picking up any of my books, or becoming a patron of Sly Flourish by going to patreon.com slash Sly Flourish. All the links for that are in the show notes below. Thank you all very much. Have a great week. See you next week and get out there and play some D&D.